Bibles this morning to uh, the book of Genesis, the fifth chapter. The title of this message is, And Enoch Walked with God, and I'm going to speak this morning on the life of Enoch. And his life has a tremendous amount of meaning and application for us who are seeking to walk with Jesus Christ in these last days. You say, well, what does Enoch have to do with the last days? I mean, he shows up in the book of Genesis. That's a pretty long distance from the book of Revelation. True. But remember the Lord Jesus said that as it was in the day of Noah, so also it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And then Jesus described what life would be like in the days prior to his second coming. Jesus connects Noah with the last days. Enoch uh, is very much connected with Noah in the book of Genesis in the fifth chapter, as we shall see. But before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll set the background and the context. Uh, We trust you, Heavenly Father, to use your word for the purposes for which it has been designed. And we who live in these last days need your word. And so we pray that the soil of our hearts would be ready to receive with meekness your implanted word, that it might deliver our souls. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick review. Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 2, he brings the woman to the man and gives them great permission. You may eat of every tree in the garden. Gives them one prohibition, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 3 The woman takes the fruit from the serpent, having been deceived by him. She gives the fruit to her husband. He eats the fruit as well. And now, all of a sudden, they have fallen. And as many have said, in Adam's fall, we fell all. And the beginning of sin in the human race in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 4, Cain, Adam's first son, kills Abel. We see that in chapter 4, and then we have the origins of culture. And then when Adam and Eve have finally another son, they name him Seth, which means appointed. And once again, men begin to seek the Lord. And that leads us to chapter 5. Now when Seth was born, this name that Eve gave him, which means appointed or substituted, means that she saw her son Seth as the replacement for Abel, whom Cain had killed. If you look at Genesis chapter 5 and just do a cursory glance at the chapter as a whole, you can see that there are very, very long lifespans that are indicated in this chapter. Uh, Methuselah tops the list. He lived to be 969 years of age. So very, very long lifespans. Prior to the flood of Noah, conditions were much differently uh, genetically and also environmentally than they are today. 
and this allowed for longer lives. The average lifespan of someone living in that age, according to this list in chapter 5, is 912 years. So the average lifespan was 912 years, contrasted to today, where in developed countries, the lifespan is anywhere between 70 and 80 years. So a great difference between then and now. Another thing to note about the chapter as a whole, and this is all background, is that Adam, our first father, was alive until the birth of of Methuselah, and even afterward, when Methuselah's son Lamech was born. And so Methuselah and Lamech, they knew of Adam and they knew about Adam, and Methuselah was alive until the time of the flood, meaning that there was a direct connection between Noah and the flood and Adam, the very first of our first parents. So that kind of shrinks these 1,600 plus years down into a much smaller time frame. You'll also notice in chapter 5 a repeated phrase. And the phrase goes like this. It's very simple. The phrase begins to be stated in verse 5, and he died. And then in verse 8, and he died. And then in verse 11, and he died. And in verse 14, and he died. And in verse 17, and he died. And in verse 20, and he died. And then down in verse 27, and he died. And in verse 31, and he died. And he died, and he died. Whether life is long or whether life is relatively short, everyone dies. The death rate is still one to one. That's the way that occasion goes. Now the reason for the death is given us in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. Remember God's promise that was connected with the command. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day in which you eat of it, you shall truly or surely die. Literally, in dying, you shall truly die. Death was promised. So they ate of the fruit, and the thing that we notice immediately is they didn't just keel over and die physically. But they very much did die spiritually. There was a separation that occurred. For the very first time, they looked down at themselves and they saw that they were naked and they knew that they were naked. So now there's an unhealthy self-awareness, a perverted sense of self, a sense of self that has been warped by sin. And they were afraid, we learn in Genesis chapter 3. They hid from God in the midst of the garden when he came walking through the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from God. They felt like they needed to cover up their nakedness and the results of their sinfulness. And so they sewed for themselves aprons of fig leaves and they covered their own nakedness. All of these things are human reactions to the perverseness of sin. 
and to the results of sin. The, the sense of awareness. We look at ourselves. We see ourselves. We see how ugly we are in and of ourselves. We, we try to do things to cover up the sense of self that we have naturally inherited from Adam. We, we want to do something about that. God shows up on the scene and we're not attracted to him, but we're repelled from him and we seek to hide from him because the sense of guilt and shame is too much for us to bear and we don't don't want to be in the presence of God because of it. All of those are symptomatic of the fall that took place in Genesis chapter 3 and are descriptive of what God meant when he said, if you take this fruit, dying you shall die. They did die. They died spiritually and they, along with every other human being born since them, were born, were, were dead in their trespasses and sins. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. He says, You hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. At one time you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that now is working in the children of disobedience. You also at one time had your life manner of life, doing the lusts of the flesh and fulfilling the desires of your flesh and of your mind. And by nature, you are children of wrath, even as the rest. That's spiritual death. So they died spiritually and they needed reconciliation with God, but they ultimately would die physically. What does this illustrate for us? It illustrates the fact that God cannot lie. And God does not lie. When God said, when you eat the fruit, dying you shall surely die, and then it happened, it's just a very clear affirmation of the truthfulness of God. He always tells the the truth. He always does what he says he's going to do. Now when we come to Genesis chapter 5, again, the rule during this pre-flood age was death. And he died, is the phrase. There's one very notable exception to this rule. And the exception shows up in the life of a man by the name of Enoch. So let's read the text and then draw some meaning and application from it. Would you stand with me as we read Genesis chapter 5, verses 18 through 24? Verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You may be seated. Enoch's name means dedicated from a word which means to be trained or disciplined or initiated. 
In Hebrew practice, the little boys that grew up to be men that were dedicated and trained were the ones that were qualified to be teachers or rabbis. So in a sense, that's what Enoch's life was. He was trained, initiated, disciplined, and qualified and trained to be a teacher. Now it tells us in the text that Enoch lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. Methuselah's name means man of the dart or a missile having been sent. Or it could mean simply ascending forth. Some actually translate Methuselah's name to mean when he is dead it shall be sent. And various commentators have different things to say on the meaning of Methuselah's name. Uh, one commentator, Gill, says, When he dies, there shall be ascending forth of waters upon the earth to destroy it. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. He dies, and there's ascending forth. And when Methuselah died, it was in the year of that catastrophe of the flood. Arthur Pink, in his commentary, Gleanings in Genesis, says of Methuselah that his name refers to the fact that when he is dead, it shall be sent, that is, the flood. The strong suggestion is that Methuselah's name was given to Enoch to name this son of his at his birth, and that when Enoch and his wife, of course, gave birth to Methuselah, at that time, Enoch received a prophecy. He received a word from the Lord. This is my opinion, and I think it bears uh, some thought, that Enoch received a, a prophecy when Methuselah was born, and the prophecy concerned the coming judgment that would come upon the earth to judge the entire world. Because remember, by the time the days of Noah came, every thought of every man's heart was only evil continually. There was not a human thought that was thought during the days of Noah that was righteous or good or noble. You couldn't find one. You could scan and scour and do all kinds of tests on people's thought patterns and you would not be able to find one righteous or noble thought in the lot. None of them. That's how things grew and devolved during the lifetime of Methuselah. And Enoch apparently received a prophecy that there would be a coming judgment because of the evil that was in the world. And it is to be noted that Enoch was alive for 65 years, and that's when Methuselah was born. And notice in verse 22, after he begot Methuselah, after Methuselah was born, Enoch walked with God for the rest of his life for 300 years. So this prophecy had great impact upon Enoch's life. He took it seriously. And although men began to call upon the name of the Lord when Seth was born, Enoch personally really began to walk with the Lord when his son Methuselah was born. Now that also has something to say to us about the remainder of Methuselah's life. Because he lived to be 969 years old, and when he died, the flood came. So what does that tell us about those 969 years of Methuselah's life? It tells us that those years 
were all days of grace and divine patience. Because we know from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there's no question that God was warning the inhabitants of the earth. That he was inviting the inhabitants of the earth. He was drawing them to himself. But they weren't listening. But they were still days of grace and divine patience. There's a fascinating observation made by some scholars as to the Hebrew meanings of the names that show up in Genesis chapter 5. And when you put them together, it becomes a very powerful message. Adam means man, of course, mankind. Seth means appointed. The next name, Enosh, means mortal, frail, or miserable. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching or teacher. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamach means despairing. And Noah means rest or comfort. So those that look at such things, they put it all together. And this is what you come up with when you compile the meaning of the names in Genesis 5. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. The gospel message found in Genesis chapter 5. And if that's a proper way to look at the chapter, it's a very powerful pre-evangelism message from the Old Testament all the way back in these early chapters. Now we notice in our passage again that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. So he is the exception. He walked with God. Later we'll read of Noah that he also walked with God. And so he, along with Noah, walked with God uh, at these times and in these years. For 300 years, Enoch had walked with God. And when it was God's time, the Lord brought him home. Now, if you'll put your finger here in Genesis 5 and flip over with me to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we'll see something important about this life of Enoch. And you know Hebrews 11, it's the hall of faith in the New Testament. Hebrews 11 is given us to show us what it looks like to walk by faith, which is really the emphasis of the book of Hebrews, these Uh, Jews that were threatening to go back into the Old Testament system and reject Jesus, they needed to learn how to trust Jesus and walk by faith. So the hall of faith is given us as a string of examples of what it looks like to walk by faith. That all throughout Old Testament history, men and women walk by faith. And so we too need to walk by faith. And right near the top of the list of those mentioned in Hebrews 11 in this hall of faith, is Enoch. We read in verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what do we learn about Enoch 
from Hebrews 11, we learn that the Lord credits Enoch and his faith for having been caught up to God, to his throne. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11 tells us that God took him and Enoch's faith is credited for that. By faith, Enoch was taken away that he did not see death. He lived a life trusting God. He lived a life that pleased God, according to Hebrews 11.5. That's the kind of life that Enoch lived. That's what his life was all about. Enoch is a picture for us of the kind of life that you and I are called to live in these last days. Enoch walked with God, and he was not For God took him. And he had this testimony that he pleased God. That's what Enoch's life was about. That's what our life is to be about as well. Now again, the earth was growing more and more wicked prior to the flood. And apparently, Enoch had this hope that he would not see the judgment of God. And in that sense, Enoch is a picture for us of the bride of Christ, which will one be taken out of the world before the wrath of God falls upon the earth. You say, really, we will? The the church, the bride of Christ, will be taken out of the world before the wrath of God comes? Absolutely. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not appointed us unto wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that the church will not suffer prior to the rapture of the church or the catching away of the church? That doesn't necessarily mean that. Believers all over the world are suffering and are going through intense times of persecution. And there's no guarantee that some of that might not hit us. But it does mean that God's anger against the sinfulness of this world, which was demonstrated in the flood and which will once again take place during the tribulation period, that anger of God against a sinful world, God has not appointed the believer to that anger. He has not appointed the believer to suffer that wrath. And why is that? Because the wrath of God fell upon his son at Calvary for the believer. And God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel message. Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation which is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus promised the church of Philadelphia. He promised the church in Thessalonica that believers would not suffer the wrath of God. And so Enoch could have very well been looking to some sort of a hopeful promise that he himself would not see the coming judgment in his lifetime. And he was looking to the Lord for that. The life of Enoch was a life that pleased God. 
much like the life of our Lord Jesus, who 100% of the time pleased God. Jesus said that all that he does, all that he did, he did from his Father. It all came from his Father. And he said, and I always do those things which please the Father. I always do those things which please the Father. Jesus is the only one that can say that. But Enoch lived a life that definitely pleased God because it was a life of faith. And it's an example for us in these last days. Trying to search for concepts that would communicate what does this look like to walk with God? What does this life look like? And my mind went to the great hymn of the church in the garden. Just to read to you the words. I don't know if you sing the hymn here. But it, in some ways, I think, communicates what Enoch's life was about. The hymn goes this way. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses. And then the chorus. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. The next verse, he speaks, and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing, and the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. What does it mean to walk with God? It means, I think, to hear the voice of our shepherd. One of my favorite passages in the scripture is the promise of Jesus, the declaration of Jesus. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. You know, I I look at that passage and Jesus says it unequivocally. My sheep hear my voice. I'm one of his sheep. That means I hear his voice. I get to hear the voice of the shepherd. And so do you. This isn't reserved for pastors or deacons or elders or any other person of human esteem. This is reserved for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I think this is key to wake up in the morning with the idea and the understanding, you know what? I am, and I have been given, the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm right with God because of Jesus. To wake up in the morning, not with a negative balance, but with the positive balance, the positive righteousness that Jesus Christ provided for us because of the cross and because of the resurrection. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives lives in you. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, that means you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. So when we arise in the morning as true believers in Jesus Christ, 
It is a true declaration to say of ourselves and even to ourselves, you are in the Spirit. You are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You are lovely in God's eyes. His eyes are tender toward you, loving upon you. He can't stop thinking about you. He loves you with all his heart and he desires intimacy with you this day. And this is what the true believer is able to say of himself of herself to himself to herself each morning. We wake up with a positive balance. And we can say with great confidence, I'm so excited. I can't wait to see what this day is going to produce because I am one of his sheep and I hear his voice. I hear his voice. You see this relationship we have with God? It started with God. He initiated it. He invented it. He made it up. It was his idea. It was his plan. Sometimes we think it was our plan. Like the whole weight and the responsibility of it falls on us. No, no, no. God took the weight of it and the responsibility of it upon himself. And he says, I'm initiating to you. I'm initiating for you. He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you search for me with all your heart. He says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Now you think, well, there it is. See, it is on me. I got to draw near to him. I got to seek him. Can I suggest another way of looking at that? He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Maybe there's another way of looking at that. Maybe there's a little bit more of God initiation than we think. I'll give you an example. This is the way I, in my puny brain, think of all these things. Uh, when I was in high school, when I was in my adolescent years, of course, like most guys, I was attracted to girls. But I was shy. I would never have thought of going up to a girl and asking her out for a date or anything like that. That was just way, way too scary for me. The only thing that would change that is when the female in question start to send out signals. You know, in adolescence or in junior high, it was a little note that Johnny would give to me that Susie gave to him saying that, you know, Susie uh, is interested in Billy. You know, it's my name, Bill. And so that was a hint, you know, that, that showed me that Susie was interested in me. And then later on, there are different kinds of signals, you know, the batting of the eyes and, the, and the, all those kinds of things, laughing at my jokes. And I could tell that somebody was interested. And so that would give me the courage to say, hey, you know, you want to hang out? They didn't say that back then, but you know what I mean. You want to go on a date or can I take you for a coffee or do you want to go to the Christmas formal with me or whatever? Now the Lord has said, listen, I want you to date me. <laughs> I want to have a relationship with you. So I'm, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you some confidence here. I'm going to give you some encouragement. If you draw near to me, I promise you I will draw near to you. If you seek me with all of your heart, I promise you I'll, I'll be found by you. I just will. 
I want to give you the encouragement and the confidence that you need to realize that I'm initiating this relationship with you. I'm inviting you into it. Come on in. Come on in. You see, when I see it that way, it's not a heavy load on me. It's an invitation from my Heavenly Father. He's saying, come on in. Enjoy. This is something I have for you. Enoch walked with God. He, I am sure, was hearing the voice of the Lord each day. And I think that's where it all starts. And of course, we've got his blessed word. This is where it starts. You know, my life began to change in a different kind of a way. I've been, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1973. So it's been, you know, quite a while that the Lord's been able to keep me somewhat faithful. <laughs> over the years, and uh, learned a lot. But in recent years, one of the things that's been really helpful for me, I'll just pass this on if this helps. Maybe you already do this. But when I read the Bible in the morning, I've started to read it out loud. And I find that that's so helpful to me because as I read it out loud, I'm in a conversational attitude with the Scriptures and with the Lord of the Scriptures. And it's very easy for me, as I'm reading the Bible out loud, to pause. And if what is being said in the passage I've just read is a promise, I pause. And I say, Lord, I trust you for that. I, I just want to see you work that into my heart today, Lord. Wonderful promise. I believe it. If it's a command, something that needs action today, then, Lord, here it is, something you're telling me you want me to do. And so, Lord, I can't do this apart from your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me practical understanding on how to do this. And, and you get the idea. Uh, the reading of the Scripture out loud puts me into a mindset of conversation with the Lord and enables me to interact with Him. And you know what's happening? I am hearing his voice through the word. I'm hearing his voice through the word. He's speaking to me. So that later on during the day when I don't have my Bible with me and I'm walking around or doing this or doing that and I hear his voice, I can recognize it as being his voice because it sounds just like the voice that I heard when I was reading the Bible, I've become accustomed to his voice. I've become familiar with it. I've become familiar with the tone of his voice. I've become familiar with the messages that come from his voice. I've, I've become familiar of the teaching of the Bible and been able to compare this rhema of the Lord, this word of the Spirit to my heart, with what the Bible actually teaches. So if the voice says, you know, of course, that Judas went out and hanged himself. And if the voice says, go thou and do likewise. And if the voice says, what you do, do quickly. I know that wasn't the Lord. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. Those verses were all about Judas, not about me. That's not what the Bible teaches. So I can compare what I'm hearing with what the Bible actually says. Enoch walked with God. He heard the voice, and I'm sure that he just communed with the Lord with the truth that was coming into his heart. 
I love this little story. There was a, a little girl that was describing her Sunday school lesson regarding Enoch. That was the lesson that, that previous Sunday, and so she decided to describe it. And she wrote it out, and she shared it with her mother. And this is how she described the life of Enoch. It seems that every day God would come by and say to Enoch, Enoch, would you like to walk with me? And Enoch would come out of his house and go down to the gate, and he'd go walking with God. He got to the place that Enoch enjoyed it so much that he'd be waiting at the gate of his house every day. And God would come along and say, Enoch, let's take a walk. Then one day, God came by and said, Enoch, let's take a long walk. I've got so much to tell you. So they were walking and walking. And finally, Enoch said, my, it's getting late in the afternoon. I better get back home. God said to him, Enoch, you're closer to my home than you are to your home. So you come on home with me. And so Enoch went home to be with God. I like it. (laughs) Enoch walked with God. And he was not. For God took him. In this, he was being pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The opposite of that is, by faith, or with faith, it is possible to please him. Think of that, pleasing the eternal and almighty God. It's possible to please him by just taking him at his word. Beautiful promise of God. So here we are living in the last days. Evil times will grow worse and worse. Men will be deceived and will be deceivers. Men will be lovers of of their own selves. They'll be lawbreakers. They'll be haters of fathers and haters of mothers. And they'll be insolent and proud and fornicators and manslayers and all the other sins that are going on in the culture around us. What do we do? What did Enoch do? Enoch walked with God. He walked by faith. He walked his own walk in order to please God. And so he was given his place in the hall of faith. That's what we're supposed to do. Now here's what happens when we walk with God. What happens is we bear fruit. And our lives become lives that are not just for ourselves and our own enjoyment of the Lord, but our lives become lives that are actually spilling out for the enjoyment of others. Way back in the book of Genesis, in the 49th chapter, it's said of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Sold into slavery at 17 years of age. Falsely accused by the wife of Potiphar of rape. Thrown into a prison. It took 13 years, but he finally stood before Pharaoh and served in the court of Pharaoh as second in command in Egypt, only to Pharaoh. Remarkable turn of events, something God had promised Joseph when he was a young man, that his father's and his mother, or his father and his mother's and his brother would bow down before him one day. He believed that. Remarkable story, the story of Joseph. But when Jacob is blessing Joseph, Jacob is on his deathbed and putting a blessing on each of his sons. This is what he says about Joseph. 
He says, Joseph is a fruitful branch. A fruitful branch by a well. His branches run over the wall. I love that picture of Joseph's life. Just think about it. Joseph is a fruitful branch. A fruitful branch connected to a good stock, a good vine stock that can produce good fruit. So Joseph is a branch connected to a very healthy, productive vine. Now Joseph's branch, his life, ran over the wall. So if you walk down the pathway in that vineyard, or outside of that vineyard, and there was a wall that was guarding the perimeter of the vineyard, you could see Joseph's branch growing up over the top of the wall. And the branches heavy with clusters of grapes, with fruit that is ready to be gleaned and eaten by those who pass by. That's the picture of Joseph's life. His life wasn't just for himself. The salvation and deliverance he experienced to be next to Pharaoh in power was not just for Joseph. He was used by God to save a whole nation, Israel. So that they could have a place to live for 400 years before they went back into the land of Canaan to take that land which God had promised them. Joseph is a fruitful bough. His branches run over the wall. That's a great picture of our lives. And that's what happens when we walk with the Lord. As Enoch walked with the Lord. We become fruitful. Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit Most translations say he takes it away. But the better translation is he lifts it up that it might bear fruit. He takes that branch that is hanging down low and the branch is close to the dirt on the ground and the bugs and shielded from the sunlight and it can't produce any fruit. And so what does the vineyard owner do? The vineyard owner comes by and he picks up that branch He lifts it up and reattaches it to the trellis and he washes it off and cleans it so that it can now be exposed to the sunlight again. It's not close to the ground and to the dirt and to the infections of bugs and it's able to start bearing fruit. That's what happens when a believer isn't bearing fruit. The Lord, the fine dresser, has an interest in that branch and he lifts it up. How does he do it? He does it when we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, just like the vineyard owner does. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. He cuts it back every year so that it might bear more fruit. And if you've ever lived in the wine country, as we have, you can see this process Every year, right around November or December, they cut back these branches so thoroughly you think there's never going to be anything growing from that branch again. But then the shoots start to go out again in early springtime, and then by the time June and July come along, you can see grapes and flowers, and then by the time picking season comes in September, October, Uh, these branches are full of fruit. He does that. He cuts back the unnecessary stuff. 
if we're bearing fruit. And then Jesus says the last thing is the way that we bear much fruit. He told us how to bear fruit. He taught us how to bear more fruit by allowing ourselves to be pruned by the Lord. Then he tells us how to bear much fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He who abides in me bears much fruit. How do you bear much fruit compared with more fruit, compared with just fruit? By abiding, living in the Lord, letting him live in us. Just this connection. You know, uh, I was pastoring in Santa Cruz, and I'll close with this story, but uh, I took the church in Santa Cruz for a couple years, and after it was there almost two years, uh, it became apparent to my wife and I that it was a transitional role and that we weren't going to be there long, and so I was to go full-time in deployment ministries again. And uh, so, you know, the way my mind works is, uh, okay, ramp up the activity. You know, do more. If I'm bearing fruit doing something two nights a week, then I ought to do it four nights a week. I'll bear more fruit. And the Lord reminded me of the parable of the vine and the branches. I am statement. It's not a parable, actually. But he reminded me of that story. He said, listen, the way to have much fruit isn't to do more, but to abide. That's the key. Abiding will get her done. Like they say in the South. We were just in Arkansas for eight months, so I can talk that way. Abiding will get her done. Abiding will get her done. Living in Christ and Christ living in us. Just his life in us and our lives in him. That's what happens when we bear fruit. That's why this is the best way to live in these last days. Live like Enoch. Just walking with God. Just Seeking to please God because that's going to mean we're going to live a life that bears fruit. And, and what happens? The branch goes over the wall and others come along and eat of that fruit. It's beautiful. It's beautiful what happens. And it's a collective thing, isn't it? The body of Christ. We bear fruit collectively. Oh, we bear fruit individually, but we're part of a family. We're part of a body. We need this to do the job, right? We need this to really make an impact upon the world around us. And that's what the Lord has given us to do. Enoch, his life, it speaks to us in these last days. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every single word in the scripture, for every single character that shows up in the Bible, for every single example, for anything that can give us a connection to the way we ought to live in these days. And we thank you for this life of Enoch, and we thank you for what it means for us in this present hour. I know I need to be reminded of this constantly. I, who am so busy and so many things on my mind and so much activity that I've got to attend to, and I often forget just the simplicity of walking with you. But thank you that you cleanse us even from that. So strengthen us now through your word, washing our minds and washing our hearts. 
in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.